1: Okay, City Limits, and it's the um, it's the second Wednesday of the month, isn't it? So we're today looking at energy and related issues, and we're going to be talking on today's program to Dave Sweeney, the anti-nuclear campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation. Well, we're going to go a bit broader than than just um, uranium today, though. We're going to talk about broad the broad impact of, of coronavirus on environmental decisions and on the environment generally, and I suppose we need to cover the fact that the government's able to suddenly pull billions out of a hat when it needs to It needs to resuscitate the capitalist economy and it shows what can be done if it really wants to and what could be spent and done to address climate change if government really wanted to do it. So we'll discuss those issues with Dave later on. But I'm Kevin Healy. We've got Meg Kimber here. We've got Karina pressing the buttons and doing... Well, she presses buttons anymore in the way she does it, but whatever she does, she's doing it and doing it <laughs> wonderfully. And... Uh, and Meg, how are you today?
2: Um, morning, Kevin. I'm good. I, good. I good it's, I'm glad we've got Dave. Look, I'm glad we've got Dave Sweeney on, on the show because he's always a fantastic guest and always has a lot to say and knows basically everything about what's going on in terms of energy, not just nuclear energy, right, but a did. lot of stuff.
1: We're going to put that to the proof today. Let's see how we go. Uh, let's <laughs> <Yeah. and laughs> really it. Uh, but
2: the other thing I was going to say that's interesting <laughs> is... Um, uh, the uh, not just about where they get the money from, but also the australian government and and some state governments you know making some decisions while nobody's looking at these issues very closely so it's another thing that
1: we're exactly at. exactly and yeah it's similar in America where Trump is lifting all sorts of environmental controls over mm-hmm. over resource industries and other yep. industries and and he's been doing it for some time even before the pandemic but yeah. anyway look I'm just going to do the annual with people know what well, is the there. image here we go hang on a minute there we are a bit of tea uh look I well I don't know I was going to open with another item but the the news at the weekend uh that over Sunday night and Monday morning and, and can I say when I say that by the way but we people probably are aware we we're all pre-recording now we're doing this on monday morning and i realized listening back last week twice i said in this morning's paper when in fact of course it wasn't this morning's paper on wednesday and if anyone looked for it they wouldn't find it so we'll have to watch that i guess mm. but uh, overnight on sunday monday morning we heard the death of the wonderful union leader jack mundy and um, mm. jack's 90 he was 90 years of age and and uh because jack's well known for the green bans in sydney in the 70s when the blf the union of which he was state secretary uh came out and and supported um community groups in environmental issues and saved so much of sydney so much of the rocks so much public housing much of which has now been destroyed by the current new south wales government but Jack played a key role, just not not just in that environmental consideration, but also the union itself under Jack broadened out incredibly. It, it became a supporter of, of, of gay rights. It became a supporter mm. of women's rights. It was it, it it fought to get women into the industry. It he mm. did so much, and he also believed totally in political rotation. Um, And therefore, he did two terms and then moved on himself. He didn't just hang around as union secretary for year after year after year, as many do. And Mm. that does lead to many problems, I think, in the union movement. But
2: Jack was a great believer in that. Just even the the lack of rotation can lead to a lack of, of capacity within an organization as other people aren't trained up to take leadership roles in.
1: Well, it's all that. I mean, yeah. if you're going to rotate and you want the thing to keep going properly, then you have mm. to train people to come through behind you, which is Indeed. a good start. But yeah. also, I read, remember reading a book years ago about the trade union movement in Britain, and I don't think it's any different here, where it pointed out that union leaders who wear a suit and meet the bosses over a table in suits Uh after they've been there long enough, they start to have more rapport with the bosses on the other side of the table and the members they're representing. Now, this isn't in every case, but it it can happen. And also they start to see the union as their private property. So if you Mm. decide to, if someone wants to challenge or someone wants to say something or to be done differently, they take it as a personal attack. Uh Uh, And Jack was a great believer in that, that people stayed in positions too long and he did Mm. two terms and got out. Mm. uh but and I was also a um I knew Jack quite well I, I in fact stayed with him in Sydney a few times many years ago, and uh, he was more than just the environmental campaigner we'd we'd go down to the pub and Jack and I did go to the pub a fair bit, but we'd go down to the pub <laughs> on a we he lived at croydon and, and and he'd go down we'd go down to the pub on a Saturday afternoon, and all the blokes there so revered Jack. But it wasn't just that he was the great union leader. At this time, he'd, been, he'd retired. But also, he, he went to Sydney originally to play rugby league, and he was a very good rugby league player in the top competition Ooh. there. And so a lot of the blokes in the pub revered him because he'd been a champion rugby league player. <laughs> uh, and so it was all that. But he, he was a a wonderful character. We did have many good times together. I haven't seen him for a number of years as he's been quite ill in recent years. But um, he was certainly a wonderful fighter for both his own members, but also for communities. And it's a pity. I think we often say, what a pity today. We can't go back to that period when the unions fought and wouldn't work on projects that were damaging to communities but that that's long since gone unfortunately. Well, that's,
2: that's the whole principle of solidarity, is that anywhere that anyone is being oppressed by capitalism, you work together to um to, to change that. And I guess that yeah, that is a powerful thing for those for those unions to take those steps to support women's rights and gay and lesbian rights and um and environmental issues.
1: Exactly. And mm. And um, yes, and he uh, he certainly fought for all those things. But he he also he um yeah he was a great believer also in his one of his mantras was the term socially useful work, which are here thrown around. But he believed it thoroughly, and he he argued that workers should not do any work that they consider to be not socially useful, and workers mm. should determine what they do themselves. Now this is moving mm. pretty close to. Taking power off of the capitalist system, of course,
2: mm. but he was
1: a great believer in socially useful work, and that workers shouldn 't do like he, he said workers shouldn 't work in the defense industry and make weapons that kill people yep. he was a great he believed they shouldn 't work they should car making needed to be controlled and he 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 worked out in fact he, that because he was also a, a greater because he saw the great environmental co- uh, problems that cars mm. create through their pollution, but also through congestion and the, the, what they do to communities and split yeah. them up. Yeah. And he, he estimated that 33%, this was back in the 80s or so, 33% of Sydney's land mass was devoted to the motor car.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. In
1: some form or other, in parking, in roads, in all sorts of things. So, yeah. uh, and he and he campaigned against that as well. So he was a, he was a true environmentalist. In fact, I got to know him because he he was on the um, he was on the federal committee or council, whatever it's called, or the Australian Conservation Foundation, from which mm. Dave Sweeney, of course, works now. Mm-hmm. And he used to come to Melbourne for meetings. So we'd, that's when we'd get together and have a few drinks and <laughs> more than a few at times. Uh, um. that's, when I first got to know, that's when I first got to know Jack. But then we, as I say, I used to go up to Sydney often and, and, and stay with Jack. And well, again, I'd go to Sydney and stay with a cousin of mine years later who lived on the rocks in a, I've mentioned this on, on city limits before lived on the rocks yeah. and you could lie in bed and literally see the sun rise behind the bridge
2: amazing and
1: I'd walk down I'd walk down to the quay every morning and watch Sydney come to life while I got the morning papers and sat there and read them and this was this was housing that was going to go to the go to the big developers but this was public housing right on the edge of Sydney saved by Jack Mundy and the Green Bands. And it's really
2: interesting what you say, Kevin, about um, that socially useful work, because that does um, show the power that um, workers have to not only follow orders that keep on making capitalism the main system that we work by and the main ideology that we work by, but also make decisions for collectively and and according to a conscience about what is right and, and community, what is important, like community and environment and quality, so that's very Yes,
1: completely, yeah. but, and, and sadly that public housing I was talking about, which is Miller's point, it's been in the news in the last few years because there has been a mm. committee, a local residents trying to save it, but most of that has now been not sold but leased on 99-year leases, effectively the same thing to big developers, and the, the government's argument is it gives us more money to build public housing. Well, yeah. we've already got public housing right in the perfect spot on the edge of the city, close mm. to everything. Mm. And, of course, the public housing they'll talk about, if they do it at all, will be somewhere mm. out in the sticks where mm. people have no access to basic facilities.
2: And based so, on what's um, happened with public housing, um, they're more than likely to sort of give give the responsibility for this to uh, a non-government organisation of some kind, basically?
1: Almost certainly, I think, yeah. Almost yeah. certainly, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so Jack Mundy, a, a great comrade and um, said to hear, 90 years of age, but said to hear that he, he died overnight, yeah. Sunday, Monday morning. Uh, yes, poor old Jack. Uh, but what I was going to start with was something uh, that Jack would be would support we mentioned last week how the deputy chief health officer here in victoria Annalise van diemen had been attacked particularly by the herald sun front page headline cook line a stinker very very funny pun uh, over a comment she made comparing captain cook's arrival to uh, the, the, the virus that the sudden, well, just to quote what she said sudden arrival of an invader from another land, decimating populations, creating terror, forces the population to make enormous sacrifices and completely change how they live in order to survive. And she came under incredible attack for that. Well, the Herald Sun followed up again through the week since our last program and said that she's gone, undergone social media counseling after all that. And the, the Liberal Party spokesperson, um, bloke called James Newberry, said that uh, even though she'd received the, the counselling, the decision, uh, the, the outcome, does not pass the pub test in terms of what she did. You can ask any person on the street, and they will say, on a work phone, this is just not right. Now, well, I keep asking, though, they, and they, they keep saying how how absolutely out of order she was. But in fact, I keep asking people, but what? which of that is wrong? What did she get wrong when she said what she said? And oh. I think we'd have to agree that we agree with what she said.
2: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I they're haven't still, read still the building whole thing, it up. But yeah, they've, they've managed to make a real situation out of it, haven't they? Must be a slow have news they. week, Kevin. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, but there's plenty of news around. I mean, yeah, coronavirus takes up 48 pages a day or something, so <laughs> that's yeah. keeping them going. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's not, not not that much. Just on another area, uh, speaking of media, which we weren't, but we're about to, uh, the ABC has lost $350 million a year since 1985. This is a report wow. drawn up by per capita, the think tank and get up. Oh. And this government, since Abbott came in in 2013, the government has cut nearly $800 million out of its budget. And they, they were, in fact, until coronavirus came, they put it on hold. They were due to, in fact, have a number of staffed cuts. And um, I imagine mm. a lot of the staff therefore will be on tether hooks during this period. Mm. But it, uh, and Quentin Juk- Jemster, who's been a sort of union activist and the ABC journalist there for a long time, Said they are under increasing threat, despite being a trusted news source. We need a strong and independent public broadcaster to hold authority to account without fear or favour. And it came as a separate report released on Friday, which I think was last Friday, showed 56% of Australians would support a $6 a year tax to fund public interest journalism. So people are quite happy to to fund the thing, but of course it's governments that claim they're left wing, and I don't think they're mm. left wing at all. I think I, I, I sometimes get quite annoyed thinking how conservative they are on many issues, so yeah. it's not that
2: they're...
1: No, but, and when, but it's they? Go on, yeah, sorry.
2: Oh, it's that it's 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 ideological thing about not having any public services, or public resources, a little bit? I don't know. Conservative governments seem to hate to pay any money to anything.
1: Well that comes into it, doesn't it, yes, that the the private oh, yeah. sector can always well I think it does. I think the, for the people who attack the ABC part of it is their a their attack mm. on something that's actually owned by the public. Yeah. If it was transferred to Rupert Murdoch or something, they decide it was very good and of course it would change it a few bit too. Yes, it would. Yeah, they yeah. would leave it alone. Oh. Rupert wouldn't, but they would. <laughs>
2: exactly. Uh, they get the same yes. result in the end. That's well, true. Kevin, they <laughs> also, um, in the last six months closed the Australian Associated Press, right? Uh, was that recently? Yes. Yeah, which is that was, obviously... Yeah, it's
1: just quite recently, yes, yes.
2: Yeah, a huge... Yes. Um, well, that would have a huge effect on small media outlets and community-run media and stuff like
1: that. Well, yes, they provided so much of the news that the other outlets used.
2: Yeah. So yeah.
1: there's certainly yeah. a, a dearth there. There's a big <laughs> hole being left. Uh, yeah. but, but we did mention some weeks ago on this program also how. Harry and Megan were about to rent a mansion in Los Angeles next to Elton John, their mate, and it it had all sorts of things going for it and it was worth so much and they were paying so much. And we pointed out that when you've lived all your lives in castles and palaces, then you've got to come down fairly slowly. But they're now, they're now about to buy a 19 and a half million Los Angeles mansion because they were only renting while they were looking for a suitable place to live. And it's, it's, it's not a bad place. It it's overlooks the sea. It boasts a cinema, swimming pool, a 0.4 hectare garden and a pergola. It has a big children's play area, perfect for Archie. Isn't that wonderful,
2: Kevin? Can I just say um, I'm real? Thank you for giving us an update on Kevin, uh, on yeah. Megan and Harry. Megan, Harry, Megan, Harry. Harry. Yeah, <laughs> in all of this coronavirus news, it's really been lost. You know, like it no has. one's talking about it. But here on City Limits, you can get the updates.
1: no thank christ tuesday last week page page three of the herald sun rupert murdoch came to the rescue on this one what 19 and, a half million. and then the other good news is that they want to find a they, they needed also with large grounds because they want to put a granny flat in for her mum and oh. yes they we're moving into the new pad once the quarantine and lockdown are over and they want mum to be in the plans. The family have been joking. This this is a big joke. You'll piss yourself laughing when you hear this. The family have been joking that Meghan and Harry will now have a babysitter on tap. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's her <laughs> mum, you see. <laughs> but but the reality is Megan doesn't trust many people, and Doria—that's her mum—is her rock and her biggest champion. Harry has also grown close to her, so believe it or not, he was receptive to the idea of living with his mother-in-law. Isn't that oh. a delightful story?
2: Wow, that's it's good great. to get some
1: good news stories, isn't it? Isn't it?
2: Yeah, that really yeah. warms your heart. Mm-hmm.
1: It does. And speaking of real estate. I thought one of, uh, just the headline got me, and I, but no need to really go on, but it's, it's about a, a property investment group that, that, run, that lease out to shops and retailers, and they're complaining about the fact that they're not, not getting as much rent as they were, and accusing the other people. But what they're accused them of is quite amazing. The headline is, Sydney Landlord Slams Rent Seekers. What? So you've got a landlord calling people rent seekers. So I just thought that in itself was quite extraordinarily strange. Do you think they'd have enough sense to shut up?
2: Uh, hang on. Do you, we might need to say that again because we lost the start of it. Can you go again, Kevin?
1: Oh, well, I, on real estate, uh, a headline in, in a paper the other day, uh, Sydney Landlord Slams... But it's about a a landlord of retail developments, etc. in Sydney, and Sydney landlord slams rent seekers. Now you've got a landlord calling the other people rent seekers. For God's sake, and what what the hell
2: are landlords other than what, rent seekers? Um, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now I get it. Um, rent yeah. seekers. Yeah, that is a property owner, right? <laughs> mm. That's kind of how that's it
1: right. well, they, Anyway, the people who are people who are who are having a bit of difficulty paying the rent. And they said, well, look, we're happy to They actually did say, which I found quite fascinating, they said, uh, we estimate 40% of our income is derived from these businesses and our survival and ability to help them. So they want to help them under the code relies on them doing their part and paying the rent. So I don't know how they're going to help them if they're going to keep paying the rent. But anyway. (laughs) Oh,
2: that sounds... That makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, it does from a capitalist point of view, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, but
1: I got another more serious one. Crown has been talking about this is Crown Casino mob have been talking about jettisoning or putting their real estate prop their property section into a separate section to which Crown would pay rent, etc. But the the uh, it's interesting because both the New South Wales and Victorian Crown casinos. Are on crown land, on government-owned land, and we know mm. they. Well, we don't know the details because it's commercial incompetence and all that stuff. But we, mm. it's 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 predicted, it's presumed they pay nothing, little more than a peppercorn rental for all that land they've got on the banks mm. of the Yarra. And so that goes on to say that if they. If the property vehicle was worth five and a half billion at a seven percent cap rate, that means Crown would have about four hundred million less in earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortisation from its casino business. That four hundred million sounds to me like the rent we should be getting for our land, uh, but I'm not sure of that. But it but yep. it seems to me that <laughs> that certainly the fact that they're on Crown land and paying bugger all really it's like at the moment the flemington vrc yeah. at flemington's talking about redevelopments and putting in all these residential and other developments there which uh, from which they'll make lots of money but they also are on crown land on a peppercorn rental that whole flemington race course where all the yeah. all the elite converge in in cup week enjoying the hospitality on crown land for which they pay nothing effectively mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me I I don't see though how they can then put developments on land they get off the crown for nothing and make profit mm-hmm. out of it over and above. But that's that's the way of the world, isn't it?
2: I have to take that as a rhetorical, I guess. Then, Kevin.
1: I think so. Yes. I yeah. think I don't think we can do much more with that. But <laughs>
2: that we can. That, but I don't and we disagree. Might.
1: We might cover a couple of those next week on our housing programme as well. Just to...
2: That's a good idea. In
1: fact I'm sure the I'm sure those who come on the housing Howard and and Shane, whoever comes on next week on the housing program, I'm sure mm-hmm. they'll be absolutely riveted by the Megan and Harry situation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we should tell them all about it. Put a little note to remember. <laughs> um yeah, that's right. our, uh, Kevin, our guest is here. Yep. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR and you can also listen to this show at 3cr.org.au and you can podcast it on whatever podcast app you use. And our guest after the break is Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation.
0: 3CR remains closed to all broadcasters and guests until further notice.
2: The good news is that so many of our programs are producing new shows each week from home. From lost in science to living free. Done by law to defence of government schools. Concrete gang to chronically chilled.
0: Mafalda to music matters.
2: We're here with compelling content and rousing radio.
0: Listen live or listen later. Tune in, stay safe and keep listening. 3CR
2: Community Radio, here to stay. Okay, back to... on
1: City Limits, and we've got Dave um, Dave Sweeney on the line from the Australian Conservation Foundation, as we announced earlier. He's, of course, the anti-nuclear campaigner, but as I said, we're going to test his broader knowledge of environmental issues because we're going to go pretty wide today. But we, at the opening of the show, Dave, we mentioned it over Sunday night, Monday morning, the great union activist Jack Mundy died. And um, I was wondering if you, because you, you, of course, were a... Back then, you were a presenter of Stick Together on this station. Um, Whether you had any comments on that?
0: Yeah, I do. Thanks, Kevin. It's a a very, you know, significant... It's a very, very significant passing. Put the cranes at half-mast for this one. Um, I had um, crossover in two ways, both with the Stick Together role, uh, where I spoke with with Jack about a whole range of, you know, progressive union issues, but also um, in my role with ACF because... Jack was uh, a former vice president of the Australian Conservation Foundation and he was a very long-term and very active New South Wales councillor because um, he saw that as an important next step to the industrial activity and action that he and the BLF took under his leadership to to protect and make living cities and to protect places like the Rocks and Kelly's Bush and um, other places in in Sydney, the QV building and more, all as a thing of, of having cities that weren't harsh um, places but, but were living places for people. Um, so he played a really important role, Kevin, in braiding really powerfully red and green politics in Australia. And it's a big loss and we should really, um, all those communities, working community, community um, concerned and active on industrial rights, environmental rights, should um, acknowledge this fella and ensure that that sort of vision and that sort of big picture thinking and linking um, that we carry it forward.
1: Yeah, we were, we were saying earlier, Dave, that sadly, uh, the that connection with the community, with unions, and uh, attempting to get unions to take action when something the community considers is unwarranted and unsocial is going ahead no longer operates it's very difficult now to get unions to take action on those sort of issues.
0: Yeah in some ways that's true like it's it's nowhere near as easy and there's all sorts of secondary boycott and all sorts of legislation primary purpose legislation on all sides that makes it harder for different civil society sectors and organizations to have really practical and and you know pushy and transformational and prickly sort of connections Having said that, though, there's still there's still very strong connections. I reckon there's very clear and public tensions sometimes, but there's also very deep. Um connections between environmental activists and and worker rights activists and also between environmental organisations and trade unions and very often the linkage is as simple as the word respect you know if you're cutting corners and disrespecting the planet then you're often cutting corners and disrespecting workers rights and industrial rights and a lot of people see that and we see that in lots of struggles and I work a lot predominantly as you know in the nuclear free space and we enjoy a strong amount of formal and informal industrial and trade union support and we're really grateful for that and there's a common link
2: part of the issue perhaps dave from an out like for people looking at this through a lens of how the media reports on on issues is that there's this very like um ingrained narrative about it's either jobs or the environment
0: Absolutely, Meg. It's the the jobs and dollars sort of dichotomy, one or the other, that really polemic polarising thing um, is a really powerful narrative and, you know, oddly enough, well, not oddly enough, it's very effectively pushed by, you know, Murdoch Press and others um, and it's also very effectively pushed in this sense of environmentalists uh, live in the inner city, are devoid from reality and are economically insulated. And working people are doing it hard and working hard and trying to turn an honest dollar and the greenies are getting in the way of people doing that. That narrative is profound in Australia, but when you you unpack it a bit, it is routinely challenged and it is uh, really clear. I think sometimes it is increasingly clear that, you know, sectors change. A hundred years ago, over one quarter of the Australian workforce was involved in agriculture. Now it's 2%. We're more productive, we grow more, we farm more, we eat more, but there's 2% of our workforce involved in that. Now, that wasn't environmental laws, regulations or protests that stopped that. That was changing economics and production modes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And people see that and people see that economies change and you look, one of the areas where there is a lot of of unity is in renewable energy, Mick, like it's the fastest growing energy sector in the world and we're blessed with it and there's some really good cooperative work being done between uh, unions in that space and environment groups. There's lots of others but you're right, we have to keep saying that actually it's not a choice of jobs or dollars. Like Mundy said, there's a classic Mundy quote where he said, what's the point of having a pocket full of money if you've got a lung full of dust? Um, so you know, I think it's not a choice of dollars or, or the environment. It's a choice. We can have both, and we can't live without either.
1: Another problem uh, related to what you said earlier. Another problem today, of course, is there's a much lower incidence of union membership, which makes it more difficult for unions.
0: Oh, absolutely! Look, union everything's tougher. You know, um, union membership is is down. Uh, Unions are really, they've been ring-fenced with regulations about what they can legitimately do. Environment organisations have been ring-fenced with accountability and reporting procedures and governance procedures and threatened to have their charity status revoked, like the world's a lot more sort of pedantic and serious and difficult to raise political and progressive issues in than it was in the 70s when you'd just say, that's it, this is a bad idea, down tools, and people would walk out and join you and that was that. Now they'll sue you, take your own house, break your union, rip up your organisation. It's tough. And so that what is necessary and what is happening is people find other ways to navigate um, and express a, a, a progressive politic. And sometimes that's not necessarily as obvious as maybe the older school was, but it's there. And there's, I think we're seeing really important, even like say we're in the current COVID context, we're seeing really important linkages between civil society organisations and trade unions about how we want the world to look, you know, as we come out of isolation, how we want the economy to look. And we've got a lot more in common than we have apart. So I suppose it's about... Um, trying to always reinforce that because there's no question whatsoever there is an active, powerful and resource push, Kevin and crew, from our opponents to shrink our political space. They don't only dislike what we stand for and say, they dislike our mere existence. They see it as beyond an irritant and a profound risk to how they want to envisage the world. Whereas we see diversity of view as the world that we live in, which is diverse and we try and find ways that include or shape or, you know, keep things moving in a positive way. But we are in, often get squeezed to where we don't even get recognised as having a legitimate part. And I think that existential threat at the end of the day makes a whole lot of people in the trade union movement realise that they've got solidarity with faith groups, civil society groups, Aboriginal groups and others. And, you know, we need, to, we need to braid in and lock in and form a shield wall in bad times. And we need to be ambitious and inclusive and quite transformational in, you know, when we get the opportunity.
1: Yeah. Related to that interesting article, it turned up in the Herald Sun as a feature article last week, I can't, couldn't believe it, by a bloke called Tony Wolfe, who's a coal industry worker in the Latrobe Valley. Did you see that at all? And he he's actually calling for saying that coal's had it. And he's, as a union bloke and as a, a worker down there, he's saying that we need, to try, we need to move to renewable energy as fast as possible and we can work together. Those of us working in coal have provided energy to Victoria for the last century. We deserve the chance to prove that we can continue to do so well into the future. And that means investing in the renewable energy infrastructure and training that will take us there. Um, really interesting stuff from a, a worker down in the valley.
0: Well, absolutely. I'm not. I'm not familiar with Tony. Don't. I didn't see that actual specific piece. No, I. I,
1: I didn't. I was hoping to track him down, but I haven't been able to. But yes. He, yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah.
0: Oh, look, I'm very aware of lots of comparable conf- conversations and and perspectives. It's, um, you know, it's pretty brave in some ways to come out in a time of uncertainty and to say, but there's more and more people in industrial politics that are seeing that, you know, the writing is on the wall. There's financial movement away from coal. Um, The world coal market has been hammered in the latest COVID stuff. But interestingly, there's a profound lack of social licence, like insurance groups, superannuation Uh, major uh, banks and funders are moving away from coal and that poses real challenges for the industry because there's 60% of coal projects globally so 60% of them in the world and 30% of ours a third of Australian coal projects need to be refinanced in the next 12 to 18 months like I'm probably one of the highest profile that listeners will know coal projects Adani it in itself needs one billion dollars refinancing for its Abbott point Port terminal in the next 18 months now that's significant money and significant uh, money globally 60 percent of projects and with shrinking social license and with renewables being faster cleaner cheaper more popular and more deployable you know the coal sector is in considerable trouble and there's a lot of people in it that see You know, longer term, they're thinking, you know, uh, what happens in the future and how does this industry change and how do we ensure that good standards, like because the strength of the coal industry and what works for the CFMEU and for many workers in that sector is they say these are good jobs, these are skilled jobs, they are well paid, they are unionised and protected. And they're all important and positive things. But the sector itself is shrinking and the product is contaminating. So we need to transition. We need to keep the good parts of that sector, as in skills, as in a sense of community and unity, as in well-paid, as in union and protected and good working conditions. But we need to move that, the good part of that legacy, into what is the fastest-growing new energy sector. So we don't have to shut down the whole coal industry and forget it all and rip it and demonise it. We need to transition and turbocharge renewables. That's the future. And there's a lot of people who are in the coal trade that see that.
1: Yeah. They, in fact, just in terms of getting the message mixed up on Friday, the financial review had a headline, trade surplus hits $10.6 billion thanks to iron ore coal. And then on Monday morning, two days ago, uh, the headline was price collapse bearing 31% of coal mines, the very point you've just made. So the industry is in trouble.
0: Yeah, and they say it's the intelligent mind that can handle contradiction, Kevin. So like there you go. <laughs> they must they must be pretty smart at the Fin Review because one day, you know, must get be. on board and the next day it's get off quick. The long and the short gone down,
1: must have collapsed over the weekend. <laughs>
0: yeah, it was sh it was shaky Saturday. The um mm. the the arc though is really clear. Like the arc is really clear. Like nuclear power is stagnant and declining. Coal, which has been preeminent, is under enormous social, environmental, and increasingly important for the sharp end of town financial constraints and pressure. And renewables are growing and widely um, being widely adopted. And that one of the benefits of them is they're cheap and readily deployable. So for many nations that are looking at this, unless there's sort of external subsidies or um, geopolitical considerations that mean that a nation-state or another country underwrites something, if you're just doing a a back-of-the-envelope greenfields decision on energy, you would not go nuclear, you would not go coal, you would go renewable. And that is what's increasingly happening. So we are seeing a major sort of uh, push and shift. We are really looking, um, you know, one of the things that ACF and other environment groups and many other are calling for coming out of COVID is, um, is basically to supercharge renewables, to have renewable energy um, powering Australia and renewable energy and energy technology and skills and infrastructure being exported from Australia. We're currently home to the world's largest single reserve of uranium, and we're currently the first or second biggest exporter of coal in the world. Now, we're a driver of dirty energy. And that is a pre-COVID way of doing business and of keeping the lights on. And so we really want to see um, the export subsidies, the preferential treatment, the, the insider suite deals for the extractive industries replaced by supercharging renewables, particularly in regional Australia.
2: Dave, you said that uh, previous, previously when we were talking, you, you were saying it that you've seen some creative and... Um Maybe less visible ways that people are working together in terms of changing um, The energy sources for example, or like coming together on workers rights and environmental issues Um, I think that you when you're talking about uh, Moving into renewables in this way and and you mentioned the subsidies and the kind of the ideologies of of this government in Australia um Where do you see hope for how that will change, considering that this this kind of conservative government is is in no way contemplating any of these changes?
0: Yeah, it's a real uh, good question, because it is really increasingly apparent that the government's um, policy agenda and ability to um, envisage Australia is wildly different. Than the majority of Australians, most people want action on climate change. You ask the question and they tick the box. Yes, yeah. action on climate change. Most people say, "Yeah, climate change is real." I'm not sure how hard or how fast, but it is real. It's fair income. Whereas many in the government still um, argue that climate change is a disputed issue and that there is, that um, coal is essential, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, you know the resource Minister Minister Pitt is seeming to be driven solely by second name in a way forward for energy in Australia mm. um, Pitt so, pony. so we um, you know we the, your question of, of where's the positives coming I think there's we're, we're seeing enormous positives at a state government level um, we're seeing on a federal government level we're seeing increasing sort of recognition that they have to change their language and try and manage the climate issue. They, they're understanding there's a, there is a real tension in the coalition between the, you know, burn the bridges so long as you're using a coal fuel um, and who cares nationals and some rusted on hard right lips and then l- liberals in marginals or in more urban areas or a lot of more thoughtful, less um, involved in... Worrying about political donations, liberals are looking at this and saying we will be kicked out, or we are increasingly exposed politically on climate. So that even that tension and that dialogue is a good sign. State government actions, and not just um, a, the the good thing here, Meg, is that the state government actions have broken that sort of bipart- that that um, partisan politics thing. We've got South Australia driving renewables in this country. We've got um, New South Wales putting some serious money into renewables and talking that there's increasing constraints on coal. We've got a whole range of activity at a state level, which is really um, positive and powerful. There's been a very strange set of circumstances recently in WA and in Queensland, where on one day... The state government has announced massive new solar farms or renewable projects, and the next day they've opened up more area for gas fracking and and oil exploration or for increased mineral activity. So they're trying to have an each-way bet, the grand Australian tradition, but at least 50% of that each-way bet is the way that we need to be going. So I think we need to continue a political pressure on a federal level. I think we need to um, keep reaching out and seeing, if you look at the financing, the financing is moving away from coal and it's moving absolutely into renewables. And we need to ensure that rent seekers like Woodside, who have been hanging around Canberra saying that we need to be bailed out, um, they do not get a lifeline for an activity whose time has gone. Um, So I do see lots of positives, but I I see basically what I see now, Meg, is that we're in a situation where, you know, we're coming out of a really um, strange and, and, you know, uncertain and disruptive time. And there's going to be more, plenty more to come, but we're coming out of that whole national lockdown sort of thing for good or ill. And we've got an option for a future that is the pre-COVID world on steroids, deregulation, Fast tracked approvals, um, the resource sector running the show, all that sort of stuff, or a future that is much more based around, you know, if you like, a human and planet centered or a human and environmental centered infrastructure, renewable energy, you know, local resilience, improved recognition and support for local manufacturing and self sufficiency or increased capacity, and a bit, and, and things like the maintenance of the job seeker allowance. And the, and the awareness that, you know, we have seen through COVID big gaps in things like aged care and mental health and that, that range of things that are safety nets that have been quietly eroded over years of conservative um, both side rule and cuts. And so there's got one side of people wanting to To have pre-COVID on steroids, one side of people saying, let's do things differently. Let's learn from this. Let's build on the the positives that came out of COVID, the things of like that there is a common good, that there is a public interest, that public health infrastructure and emergency service workers and all that sort of stuff, they delivered. And that's why, you know, um, we've got a much better result than many other countries and also an important thing from COVID, I reckon, Meg, and it's interesting, I didn't think I'd really say this, but it's that government really matters. Like people look to government and government really matters. And so I think our politicians need to realise that it's not, um, a, you know, a career or a birthright, that it actually is public service, public representation. It actually is leadership in the common good. So some of the language of common good and common interest, I think we need to really talk up. And, you know, a positive of the COVID time coming out of that is that the role of government, we've seen increased big government and interventionist government, and it's shown that it's possible to move a political agenda and the dollars that advance it in a very big way, in a very big way. So governments should be bold to do something that is inclusive, positive and sets us up for the future. So my concern is that they'll be bold to do more of the same that, that gets us into a mess and that takes us down cul-de-sacs. Um, my hope is that they'll be bold with pressure to do things that build, you know, a more people-centred and focused uh, future right across the board from infrastructure to service delivery. And, you know, that comes down to us. It comes down to the 3CR listeners, the the ACF and Friends of the Earth members, the trade unionists. It comes down to everybody that makes a difference and puts in to try and push our weight so that we don't just pick it up where we left off and then chuck all that money into a path that's just going to exclude people damage planet and see us in ever um, increasing little uh, cells and constrained groups we need to build on the community that's been developed in the last couple of months and build on some of the smart ideas for a cleaner future Mm. i think many i think many of
1: us uh, dave are saying that uh, the, the speed with which they've acted and the money they've thrown into addressing the problems of capitalism show what they can do if they want to address a problem such as climate change and what could happen if they uh, pulled their finger out, which is what you're saying, of course.
0: That's exactly... You've said it much sharper and shorter than what I said, it, and you're spot on. This has shown that they can chuck money and make a difference... And people are saying, well, make that difference now. We've got other emergencies. We've got another existential threat sitting over there too, which people aren't speaking about. We're spending multiple billions on defence, which is not defending anybody. We've got the existential threat of nuclear weapons, like get rid of those stupid things, drop down the defence spend, keep a capacity to defend the nation, but not this absurd 20 billion a year, year after year. Um, And actually... You know, it's very interesting, like you said, how quickly they adopt socialist principles to protect a capitalist framework when it's not working. And what let's, let's just spend some of that money seriously to reorientate the economy for public good and in the public interest, rather than saying, let the market provide. Because what we've seen, and particularly in the early days of COVID, is the, the market, the invisible hand of the market is not fair, it's not inclusive, it's not equitable, it doesn't support. Um, it, um, you know, the invisible hand of the market wasn't very good handing out toilet paper. Let's yeah. learn from those things and let's do it differently. And we have got the capacity, that we, you know, the amount of money going into COVID uh, response shows that we can, you know, money's not an option when it comes to the big end of town.
2: You're listening to City Limits and um, this is 3CR Community Radio and our guest is Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation and Dave is the anti-nuclear campaigner there. We've got a a bit less than 10 minutes left. Did we want to go to anti-nuclear campaigns at all, Dave, or shall we keep on where we're at? Because I like what we're talking about.
0: I'm very happy to take my guidance from, you know, the wise folk at city limits, Meg. I'm good. Well, what does Kevin we'll, have to
1: say? We'll get to it shortly because the way before we got on, before Jack Mundy's death, I, my original plan was to ask Dave to give us a rundown of where the anti-nuclear situation's at, including the, the Kimber um, waste dump in South Australia. But just just before we go there, uh, Pitt, the bloke you mentioned, who replaced cannabis as minister, of course, there was a major swap. Um uh, he's come out apart from saying we need to open up more coal mines to get jobs going after the virus he's he attacks people like the australian conservation foundation dave and says we need to tackle green lawfare, groups like the acf using the law to challenge projects and he says we need to de-risk investment into australia so we have to get rid of environment groups using the law to hold them up
0: yeah, that one is—it's um, uh, a real major button pusher for conservative forces. When, when a community or a civil society group or any other actor or voice uses the courts or the legal processes to explore and uphold and uh, their legal rights, it pushes. Um, conservative buttons extraordinarily. I would have thought that people that talk about the rule of law and the need to be law-abiding would then accept that you have a legal system and you abide within it, and if you use it and you carry the day, then, wow, there you go. Instead, it seems to be that any attempt that is critical to a project or seeks to constrain a project is seen as not just seen as people um, that don't share the same dream it's seen as actively hostile it's like a step away from some sort of it's an incipient incipient sort of domestic terrorism it's it's there's a really uh disproportionate sense of response and anger to what they term constantly you know green lawfare Um, you know, I'd say that it's the right of people in a democracy to exercise their democratic and legal rights. And I think that that's the lifeblood of democracy. It's use it or lose it, just like, you know, muscles um, get up there and have a walk around the block, which means if you don't want to see the project go ahead, one of your options is to explore what are the legal and uh, is that company abiding by its legal requirements? Is that government action and approval in accordance with the law? Like, they should not be things that threaten And I think if you're, it's also a very funny thing, Kevin, where in order to deny people's access to the law, the government uses ever more repressive laws. So it's using the same process of law to shut down access to law. And yet on one hand, it's saying that this is, you know, mischievous. And on the other hand, this is essential.
1: They've often also come out and attacked attacked, uh, groups and called it green lawfare when the groups have gone to court and actually won the case. So in fact, the law has been on the side of them, but they've been attacked for using it.
0: Absolutely, it's it's extraordinary. Like there has been, you know, clear examples of where a company or a government has not abided by the law and the court has said that and then awarded a a judgment of varying degrees of severity or complicating, uh, you know, factor for the, the proponent but they've they've been in the wrong and the law's just said no you have not you know delivered you have not delivered um and apparently this is seen as this intensely politicized thing rather than just the fact that we have a legal system constrained though it is based on assumptions that are you know exclusive though it is um but we have a legal system so at least let people have access to that if you are fair income that your processes are good, if you are genuine and have confidence that your assessments and procedures and approvals and companies and protocols stack up, then you would not worry about a group taking them to court because you'd feel vindicated. The fact that you're trying to shut down that access to take them to court shows that you are really trying to cut corners.
2: Mm.
1: Now, back to Uranium. In the the time left, um, can you update us on what's happening in that area?
0: Not much being dug, not much being sent. Um, we're moving like the uranium market has been smashed post Fukushima, and it's not getting better. Um, the uh, the main focus in Australia now, really for uranium, is uh, the cleanup of a very old mine, Rum Jungle, and uh, just about to finish Mine Ranger, in the top end of the Northern Territory. A lot of eyes on that. A lot of money, both public and private, going into making sure those cleanups happen. The other, so the uranium sector is, it's always fighting, it's always pushing, it's always seeking a favour, but it's deeply underperforming and the fundamentals of its economics are deeply flawed. I don't think it'll recover. The other issue in nuclear land in Australia at the moment, Kevin in particular and Meg, it's radioactive waste and how do we manage that? And the government is pushing ahead. In fact, today it's introducing, uh, reintroducing legislation into uh, the House to try and fast-track radioactive waste dumping in regional South Australia, which another government inquiry, another parliamentary inquiry said will, at a minimum, severely adversely impact the human and cultural rights of Aboriginal people in the region, apart from anything else. So they haven't learnt after 20 years of failure and that one, the radioactive waste one, trying to encourage management and responsibility rather than dumping and um, political sort of expedience, that's going to be a big challenge for the nuke-free movement in Australia over the course of the rest of this year.
1: Mm. Is, is most of the waste they're talking about from Lucas Heights in Sydney, or is there, are there other sources as well?
0: Uh, overwhelmingly from Lucas Heights. Overwhelmingly from the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, ANSTO, in Sydney. So it's, it's reactor waste, spent nuclear fuel from, from um, the Sydney reactor, And uh, the interesting point here is that environment groups are calling for that waste to remain where it is, Kevin, because ANSTO is on paper, and according to the sign at the front gate, Australia's Centre of Nuclear Excellence, it has uh, excellent high-level security, 24-7 federal coppers with dogs and the Holdsworthy Army Base, Commando Base across the road and all that sort of stuff, the highest level of monitoring and response capacity for radiation incidents in Australia, and the stuff's already there. So our line is keep it there till you know, through an agreed and evidence-based process, what we're going to do to ultimately manage it. ANSTO's line, adopted by the government, is move it out of here and put it in regional South Australia and then we'll get around to working out what we're going to do with it in the long run. So it's a double handling idea. You know, they just kick it down the road. And our concern is once they get it out of Sydney, it goes from being a crisis to the other phase and speed of government, which is back burner. It lands at a place... A grain growing town in regional South Australia and it sits there and everyone just duck shoves for the next decade, 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 century. We want to see one um, approach that is evidence-based, that brings people to the table, that asks the question, what's in the long-term least worst way to manage this material, rather than how can we get it out of Sydney? So that's the sort of fight. The government is like, we've been talking about this for long enough, it's time to get on with it, we need a decision. The environmental groups, lo- many local residents, and the Aboriginal traditional owners are saying, "Well, hang on. There's so many flaws on this from a human rights, from an environmental, and from an industrial waste management perspective. Um, at the moment, there's not a lot of interface between the two sides. It might come down to green lawfare. It might come down to you know us seeking whatever avenues we can to ensure that radioactive waste, the material." From Sydney, Kevin, it needs to be isolated from people and planet for 10,000 years. Direct hazard for 10,000 years. Like, that is not inconsiderable, so let's do it well. Mm.
2: We are at, at uh, the end of the show, I'm afraid.
0: Okay, well, like, that's a real pity. It's always good to talk with you, Mom, and you've always got so much to, you know, open up so many doors. Some of them it's good to walk through. <laughs> <laughs> and some Thank of
1: them Dave. aren't. <laughs> okay, look, thanks a lot, Dave, for coming on. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Pleasure.
0: All the best. Bye-bye. <laughs> thanks, Dave. Okay.
1: And um, Meg, um, next week, housing, when we'll no doubt get an update from Howard Morosi, and hopefully um, Shane or someone from the Housing with the Aged Action Group to talk about housing issues.
2: Yes, indeed. The things are happening there all the time, including not only public housing, but also... Um, what's, what are the rights for renters in the current situation? So that would be great.
1: And there's also the issue now that the homeless are, in fact, being, being housed, which shows they can do it exactly. uh, during the coronavirus, but, the, but then they, they plan to throw them back on the streets once they feel things are back to normal again, whatever normal is going to be. Yeah.
2: yeah, again, another example of the fact that governments can actually direct money to the places that need them if, if, they, if they choose to, so...
1: If they pull their finger out, as we said, that's right. Okay, look, um, I said, we'll say goodbye, Megan. Thank, thank Karina for doing, again, a wonderful job.
2: Karina, you're incredible. Thank you, and thanks to listeners, and thank you to you, Kevin. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.